The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to Leviticus chapter 2. It's our privilege to open to this passage of Scripture to discuss the meal offering this evening, also known as the grain offering. It's one of the five sacrifices that were part of the Old Testament worship of the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Several weeks before we began this study, someone told me that they were reading in this part of the Scriptures, and uh, they were reading about priests and sacrifices, and this person asked, what is that all about? I don't understand that. And that's a very common question that we get when people are reading through the Bible. This seems to be very hard, but one of the things that we've learned, that in order to understand this part of the Scriptures, we also have to know the New Testament. And so we study the New Testament, and we put these things together, Old Testament and New Testament, and out of this emerges a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. And this offering is another of those great pictures, and I'm just anxious to show you a little bit more about the meaning of it in tonight's message. Now, this meal offering is classified as a sweet savor offering, and I hope that you remember this means that it's an offering that has to do with the character of Christ. We've learned, once again, not all offerings are sin offerings, and this one does not picture the forgiveness of sins, but rather it's a picture of worship and of faithfulness for God and faithfulness and, and of God's provision. One author noted that the grain offering was given so that God would be praised for his abundant supply. And so the grain offering is an offering that took intense labor from the hands in order to bring in the harvest and to and to make uh, the parts of this offering. Uh, As we know, people don't contribute to the work of redemption. Christ did all of that work by himself. He did it alone. But they do contribute to things like the growth of crops and tilling the ground in order to bring in the harvest. And that part of this offering, the works of the hands, uh, tilling the ground and, and, and making the flour and all of that, shows us that we are to be busy about working for the Lord, contributing to the welfare of our fellow man. That's the principle that we find in the royal law, and that's what we see here that says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's part of this offering to to show us that picture. This offering also represents Christ because he was a servant, and he made himself a servant. He commanded his disciples to be servants, and he told them, you're never going to reach anything in the kingdom of God until you decide that you are going to offer yourself as a servant of people, to take up a servant's place. And then he very graphically demonstrated that when he girded on a towel himself, and then he bent down to wash the disciples' feet. Well, this evening I'd like for us to continue uh, on the elements of this sacrifice and, and show how the different components of it represent the life of Christ. Now, if you look in Leviticus chapter 2, we're not going to read this entire chapter but I want to refer to different parts of it in the message, so you want to keep, uh, keep this part open. But let's just read four verses here. Leviticus 2, verses 1 through 4. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, that is a meal offering, same thing as meat, uh, meat 
means, if you remember, that just means food. Not necessarily that there is any animal sacrifice in this offering because there isn't. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take thereout his handful of the flour thereof and of the oil thereof, and all the frankincense thereof, and the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Now we want to resume this evening in the second part of our outline, which is the symbols of the offering. The first part of the message was about the sign of the offering. Uh, the, the people in the Old Testament didn't understand as much about God's purposes in this offering as we do. And the first part of the message was an overview of how Old Testament believers interpreted this all, uh, offering according to what they knew. And then we looked after that at the significance that's added to it as we look into the New Testament. And in this part of the message, we break down the meaning of the different elements that are added to this offering. It is a grain offering. Bread is made from grain, and bread is the staff of life. That represents essential nourishment that every person needs. Christ said, Jesus said, that he is that bread that came down from heaven. And of course, here in this offering, we see that bread is the focus of it. But then there are other things that are added to it that are adornments for it that make it better, to make the whole thing better, just as we add to our meals to make them better. And what this does is further develop Christ's character, the pictures of Christ's character in this offering. Now, last time we discussed verse number 1, which says that the meal offering was made of fine flour. And that fine flour represents the well-balanced life of Christ. That Christ is the bread of life, and for his life to be beneficial to us, it had to be lived in perfect compliance with all of God's command. It had to be a, a, a perfect life with no sin. Every action, every reaction, every interaction that he had with others was perfectly according to the holiness of God. The flour was beaten in order to make it smooth and even powdery consistency. And to do that, the one who offered had to spend just copious amounts of time to grind the flour over and over and over again to get it to that perfect consistency. So there's this hard labor that's put into this to get it just right in order to meet God's specifications. And that represented the constant, grueling, grinding work of Christ's life. And his life was one where there was very little rest. And though he did so much good for the people, yet he was constantly harassed by religious leaders. He was rejected. He was always consistent through all of that, though. And he never schemed to get what he wanted by being subversive. His temper was even. He wasn't constantly up and down. He wasn't melancholy at one moment and then prone to be temperamental in another he was capable of things like sadness. He wept in sorrow. He was capable of anger, that is, 
righteous anger, such as when he drove the money changers out of the temple. But every emotion that Christ had was appropriate for that moment in that time, and he never acted unexpectedly or out of the ordinary. It's just that evenness, that consistency in his personality, so that he was a very delightful person to be around. His love, his compassion, his patience was a part of every single waking moment of his life. And that's what this flying flower represents, that well-balanced life, that he's perfect in every area, in every relationship. He exceeded expectations in favor with God and man. Now next we go on in verse number 1 to read, And when any will offer a meat offering, the meal offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour and... He shall pour oil upon it. So there's fine flour, and then there is also oil in this sacrifice. What is oil? Well, oil stands for the anointed life of Christ. Oil is probably the easiest of all these elements for us to decipher. Uh, Most of you see oil in the Scriptures, see it in a place like this, and you really don't have a whole lot of trouble thinking what oil might stand for. Uh, The antitype of oil is relatively easy for us if you've done much reading in the Scriptures. Almost always, oil refers to the Holy Spirit. In both the Old and the New Testaments, it was common to use anointing oil. That oil was to say, the Spirit of God is upon this person. That God's divine favor is in it, present in the life and ministry of the one that is anointed. And so priests were anointed for their consecration kings were anointed before they assumed their office. And then we know from the New Testament that oil was used to set a person apart, that it's actually a picture of a person's sanctification. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify. And so when we see oil, that's always indicative of the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you read down further through the text, you'll see constant references to oil in verse number 2. And in verse number 5, in verse number 6, in verse number 7, in verse number 15, again in verse number 16. And it's this repetition over here of oil, always use oil, put oil on it. And when I read this text for the second and the third times, I was struck by that constant repetition, use oil in this offering. And I think what the Lord did was to make sure the people understood this very clearly. You cannot do without this part. You must have this in the offering, and that reason for it will be more apparent as we go through this. Now think for just a moment and consider, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus' connection with the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter preached to Cornelius. He told him about Jesus and how that God had sent Jesus to preach peace, and he meant the peace of reconciliation between God and man. And so by what power did Jesus preach? We see it in Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Jesus did his work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? Well, that scripture tells us he went about doing good. He went about healing people that were sick and those that were oppressed by the devil. So the first thing that you see in that is the result of Holy Spirit power. When he is present, there's always a good work that comes out of it. There's always something good for man that comes from it. The Holy Spirit is always good for God's people. 
Now, once again, then, we see the connection uh, to the second table of the law. And rem- we remember this, that the grain offering answers to the, an- to, the, uh, to the works of benevolence for our fellow man. Holy Spirit power in Jesus caused him to focus on the needs of others. Even when their needs, when he met their needs, they took away his life. But most importantly is this point, that the Holy Spirit was in his life. And if you want to see Old and New Testaments come together in harmony, brought together to reveal who Christ is, this is one of the best places that we can see it. Now before we connect those two, I want you to think back to the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus appeared to them and spoke with them. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he told them all the things in the Old Testament that were about him. Now, if if you read a scripture like Isaiah 61, verse number 1, this will be a very good example of the kinds of things that Jesus would have said to those two disciples that were on on the road to Emmaus. So Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. No doubt he said that to disciples. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound. In Luke 4.18, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, he purposely turned to this same scripture in Isaiah. And there in that scripture of Luke 4.18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's saying this, of course, as he's reading to the people in the synagogue and talking about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to captives, to the, recover, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And all eyes were fastened on him as he read that. Then he folded the books, uh, closed the scroll. He sat down and he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God rest on me. Now, the power of the Spirit in him was evident. It's evident in his miracles, their proof. The blind man that's healed in John chapter 9 boldly went to the Sanhedrin and said to them, he said, from the beginning it's never been heard that one could open the eyes of someone who has been born blind. And so he was powerful in all these miracles of healing. He was powerful when he showed that He could command demons to come out of a man and to displace and go into another place, to go into a herd of pigs and cause them to run down that steep place and just, as we say, did the swine dive into the sea. He had the power to bind the strong man, that Satan. He cast him out of his house. He has the power to break the chains of sin and to loose people to believe the gospel and to be saved. And isn't that exactly what the Holy Spirit does? He's the one that frees the sinner so that he's able to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now the life of Christ then is this constant grinding, it's the wearing down, it's the exasperations that often made him look defeated. But he was never defeated. They couldn't conquer him. When he appeared before Pilate, Pilate said, I've got the power to crucify you. Jesus said, you have no power at all against me, except it's given to you from above. 
They thought that the tomb could hold him. That didn't work. According to Romans 8, verse number 11, who was it that raised Jesus from the dead? The Spirit in Romans 8, 11. Now, we, th that's a good answer, though. Jesus, we talked about that a few weeks ago in the form class. Remember that? A couple of weeks ago. The Bible says God, the Father, raised up Jesus. The Holy Spirit raised up Jesus. And Jesus raised up Jesus, right? Well, in Romans 8, verse number 11, our point is that it is the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. The Spirit is always with him. So, how did Jesus do all this? He lived as a man. He lived an earthly life, and he lived out of his human nature. He didn't use the divine nature. He had all human characteristics. So, how was he able to do all of these miracles? Well, he had... he. He relied on the anointing of the Holy Spirit for his power. That's where it comes from. Now that teaches us that if Jesus had to rely on the Holy Spirit, then how are we going to do anything without him? It's impossible. It's futility. If you and I attempt to do anything for God without the power of the Holy Spirit, it is loss. We can't do it. It's impossible. The Holy Spirit must work in us to do anything that we do for the Lord. Now, we go back here to Acts chapter 10 for just a minute. Where does the Berean Baptist Church get the doctrine of the absolute power and sovereignty of God? Well, it doesn't come from obscure passage of Scripture that we just have to search all over the Bible to try and find something that tells us that. Now, we can find these doctrines on nearly every page of the Bible. We find it right in Acts 10, verses 36 to 38, where it says that Jesus preached peace. And I've just explained to you that the peace that that's talking about is reconciliation with God, not that he preached peace between people. That's something that's going to come much, much later. But he came to preach reconciliation with God because we are all enemies of God. And he preached that reconciliation, that peace with God through the Holy Spirit. Now, in that verse, in those verses, we find the doctrine of total inability. And there we also find the doctrine of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Others will read the passage and they'll just glide on by that. But once you realize the doctrines and you know what to look for, these things will show up in many, many places. You can see these, that God plants the seeds of this doctrine throughout the Word of God. He teaches us that we don't choose Him, that He chooses us, and that He reconciles us through his choice, and by the power of His Spirit. A few days ago, I read an article uh, by a Baptist pastor who said, there is no effectual call of the Spirit. And he meant there's only one call. There's a general call, the same call that goes out to every person every time the gospel is preached, and that the Holy Spirit makes no separating effectual work in the heart of a sinner. The response, he said, is yours, and it's yours alone. I beg to disagree with that. Nothing is done without the Holy Spirit actively working in the sinner. And that's absolutely necessary because people will not come to Christ when there is no peace with God. They don't have a heart to do that. They're always at enmity with God. That means we are at war with God. And so what the person will do in his natural existence, his natural heart, is always to refuse peace until the Holy Spirit works and begins to break down that resistance and destroys the enmity. 
Find one scripture in all of the Bible anywhere that it says that a lost sinner can enter into peace negotiations with God and you won't find it. It's not there. It has to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to look at, at, at how Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is necessary for our work. The Spirit was necessary for His, so of course it's necessary for ours. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 24, this is after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they came back to Jerusalem uh, after that encounter and they spoke to the apostles. And it was then that Jesus miraculously appeared in their midst. And then he gave them instructions for what they should do. Now, you'll notice here first that he tied the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Luke 24 and verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, if you'll turn just a few pages over to Acts chapter 2. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait. Wait, he says, because then you will be endued with power from on high. So now they're in Jerusalem and they are waiting just as Jesus instructed. And they waited nine more days from the time of the ascension. And this is what happens in Acts 2 verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus told them to go and wait. Now, if you're waiting on me to tell you that you can speak in tongues, then you're going to need to wait a long, long time. That's not going to happen. So we'll just take that part right off of the table. Tongues are not for us. We don't need them. Tongues were assigned for that time, just like sacrifices were assigned in the Old Testament. That's not for us today. So the day came when those things are no longer needed. Sacrifices are no longer needed. Tongues are no longer needed. So we now have the complete Word of God that we rely on. We don't need anything else. And therefore, we can spend our time connecting types and antitypes of the Old and New Covenants. And this is what we call the richness, the fullness, the sufficiency of Scripture. But we do have this. We do have this left over from that encounter. And from what Jesus said in the book of John, we do have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That in our conversion to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in the believer. Jesus said that he would leave the world, but he wasn't going to leave us without the Comforter, that is, without the Holy Spirit, that his presence would be in us in the person 
of the Holy Spirit. And so my point in this is to tell you that every power, all the power that you need to live the life of Christ is already in you. You have the Spirit of God in you as Jesus had it in him, and by that you can live a holy life. I'm not going to claim that you can do everything that Jesus did. We're limited by sin nature. Jesus didn't have the sinful nature. I'm not going to say that you can't make mistakes because Jesus never made mistakes, but I will say that you have the power to live without sin in your life by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to say that you're a little God, that you can name and claim anything that you want, but I will say that the Spirit sanctifies and that if you'll yield to His working, you can live a holy life that's pleasing to God. Now, hold on to that, because that is important by virtue of this sacrifice. It is sweet savor. Remember, this is sweet savor. It's an aroma of a sweet smell. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says to present your body as a living sacrifice, one that's good, acceptable, and is the perfect will of God. And folks, that exactly describes the life of Christ when the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, do you see why God says, don't? forget the oil in this sacrifice. The Holy Spirit must be in it. Everything that Christ did and you do is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's spend just a little bit more time speaking of the Holy Spirit. It's not my purpose to do a study of the third person of the Trinity this evening. We're speaking about Christ in the sacrifice, and so He is the one that is the focus, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit to show Him but it is good for us to talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit in his relation to Christ's work. And this is a very sad thing today, folks, that there is so much confusion about the Holy Spirit. The charismatics focus on the gifts of the Spirit, and as they do, they obscure the work of Christ. And I don't want you to get the idea that because this scripture mentions oil many, many times, that God wants us to drown in oil. Now, we don't look for a baptism of the Holy Spirit here. That would be very strange, wouldn't it? That'd be a, that would be a very strange picture. The oil is there because of the grain. The grain is the focus of the offering. The grain is primary, and so is the life of Christ primary. The oil is not the sacrifice, it's the grain. And so likewise, we never find an Old Testament precedent for magnifying the Spirit as charismatics do. The picture is of Christ, not of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't diminish the Holy Spirit in any way. And I'll show you in just a minute that it doesn't because the Holy Spirit has his own peculiar work to do in the Trinity. Now let's just take a moment to show you what Jesus said about the Spirit in relation to him. This is foreshadowed in Old Testament types. Now if you would, let's turn to Exodus chapter 25. Now, as I told you um, at the beginning of this series, the sacrifices, these sacrifices, are part of the bigger picture. It's the picture of, of tabernacle worship. Tabernacle is an excellent teaching tool about the relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, in Exodus 25, uh, if you just want to scan it there just a little bit where, where this particular scripture is, there, there's a plan for molding a golden lampstand that would light the tabernacle. If you've seen a Jewish menorah, you have a pretty good idea of what that lampstand looked like. We show you there 
uh, here a, a couple of images of it. This is described in Exodus 25. And if you look at verse number 31, uh, I just want to read this part so you can see one of these types that this just leaps out at us in this scripture. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. Now you can go on reading the rest of the text later, but let me explain a few things here. The candlestick, or this lampstand, is, is made of pure beaten gold. And that gold represents deity. And you see the word beaten? I don't think I need to take time to explain that in relation to Christ, do I? You, you should see the picture of Christ in that immediately. Now, if you look at the picture, there you see the priest pouring in oil into the little bowls that are at the end of the branches of the lampstand. Now, the first thing I would ask you is, what are you immediately drawn to when you look at the picture? Well, I would, I, I would say that you would focus in on the beautiful candlestick, wouldn't you? I doubt any of you would focus on the stunning part or say that the stunning part of this picture is the oil. Well, the stunning part of the picture is the beautiful lampstand. Obviously, the focus is the lampstand, and that lampstand is a type of Christ. This is a gorgeously, fabulously expensive article of the finest craftsmanship. And Christ is the very best of all. That's what this represents. As John Flavel said in his sermon on Haggai 2, he is the desire of all nations, that he is altogether lovely. Now, before I make this next comment, I just want to say something about the pictures that you see. Uh, this, these, these pictures came from an old set of, on the tabernacle that my dad had 65 years ago. Uh, Jeff Boyd, if you remember him, uh, digitally remastered all of those for us to enhance the colors and so forth that had faded over that 65 years, which I'm very much in debt to him because this is, those are, uh, to me at least, precious and historical articles, the original uh, slides that those are on, which I still have. But that's where they come from. So you have the tabernacle then, and the tabernacle is a very, very dark place. There aren't any windows in it. And the entire structure was covered with four separate tarps. Now, in the picture that comes next, the coverings are peeled back, so you can see these four separate coverings. First, you have a linen tapestry. That's embroidered underneath that you would see from the inside cherubim in the top of that linen piece. Next is a covering of goat's hair. Uh, then the third covering is ram skins that are dyed red. And then finally, over all of that, is placed badger skins. And then you see the door of the tabernacle is another curtain, and that's solid a solid covering there, and so there is no light that penetrates into the tabernacle. The only light that's in there is that golden lampstand. And when the priest lit the wick that was in the oil on, each, on the end of each of those branches, it just lightened up the entire place, and, the, and the, uh, the light just glistened off of that golden candlestick, and across the way, directly across from it, is a table of showbread that's also wood overlaid with gold. And then, as you approach the Holy of Holies that would be in front of you, there is an altar of incense. And then also you would just see that beautiful tapestry of the ceiling that's lit up by that golden lampstand. Now, I don't have time to preach all of that. Every part of it has its significance. 
But the thing here is that if you're looking at the tabernacle from the outside, you have no idea what's on the inside. The outside, you see dry badger, drab badger skins. But on the inside, it's beautiful. And the symbolism here is that there is no beauty in Christ as a man, not from the outside. Isaiah 53, verse number 2, tells us that. There was no beauty in him. It's not until you get on the inside and you know Christ that you see how glorious he is. A person who has seen Christ on the inside does not go around saying things like, Oh, Jesus Christ, and use his name in vain. Not when you see Jesus on the inside, how glorious that he is. But I have to hasten past all of that to talk about the candlestick and the oil. Now, the candlestick teaches us that Christ is the light of the world. But how will Christ shine? The lampstand doesn't give any light unless there's fuel for the fire. And so the priest has to pour in what? Oil. He pours in the oil. And there we see the relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He allows Christ to shine. He shines. He allows Him to shine. He lights up Christ. That's explained in John 16. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself. But whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and will show you things to come. And He shall glorify Me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies Christ, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. You think that charismatics spend any time reading those verses? Do you think that they understand the typology in the tabernacle? You see, to magnify the Holy Spirit is unscriptural. It's disgraceful to the Holy Spirit because, because it alters the essential work of Jesus the Son in his salvation and his place in the Godhead. And I, and I say that the charismatic alters that, but in reality he has no power to alter anything at all. He obscures things, maybe. All he can do is blaspheme. Now take a look back at the grain offering again. The focus of the passage in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 2 is not the oil. The oil is essential for the proper presentation of this offering. But what's primary? The grain. The grain is primary. And so likewise, in the worship of the church, Jesus always remains the focus. He's the Savior. It's His life that's central to our worship. And so our lives dissolve into His, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. He keeps that focus, keeps your mind on Jesus Christ as He empowers your worship to the Son of God. Colossians 3 verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in Glory. Now we could spend a lot more time on that, but I need to go on. Let me just get in one more part before we close up tonight. In the first verse again, Leviticus 2, And when any will offer a meat offering, the meal offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. That was first. He shall pour oil upon it. That's second. And then thirdly, he shall put frankincense thereon. Next is frankincense. And that stands for a pleasing life. In Matthew 3.17, Lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I've read a lot of stuff, a lot of things on this, and there are many people that struggle with frankincense in the offering. 
But with a little thought, I, I believe that we can see the importance of it. This is just another addition that fills out the beautiful picture of Christ. What do you know about frankincense? Probably most of what you know comes from Matthew 2, verse number 11. And this is when the wise men came to see Jesus at his birth. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. How many of you were ever in a Christmas play? Anybody? Well, a few of you. You know, it's sad that you don't see Christmas plays in our public schools any longer. Maybe you'll see a play, but it won't be the Christmas story of B.C. A.D. Maybe some A.C.D.C. You might see some of that. Um, I read an article in which there was a lady who said that she went to see her grandson's Christmas play. And she said this, this Christmas play consisted of a band that played two Christmas carols, a Beatles song, and the finale of the Overture of 1812. That's the Christmas play. Now, when I was young, the Christmas play at school was a big, big thing. And we practiced for weeks and weeks, and on the night that we had the Christmas play, the gym was packed with, uh, with parents and students. And I was in more than one Christmas play, but the one that I remember the most was when I was in the fourth grade. And I played one of the three wise men, or as lots of people say, the kings, you know, the three kings. Now the school, the school didn't provide the costume, so it was up to mom to make a costume. My mother did not do much sewing. You couldn't call her a seamstress by any stretch of the imagination. So my kingly robe was my blue bathrobe. So I, I went to school, and what she did, she just stitched down a little gold embroidering down the front of my bathrobe, and that's what I was in the play. That's, that's, I was one of the kings in the play. And the king that I was was the one who brought frankincense. And I'll confess to you, at that age, I didn't know the difference between frankincense and Frankenstein. It didn't mean, it didn't mean nothing at all to me. But I grew up, and I learned a little bit more, and I'd love to share the benefits of my uncommon wisdom with you and knowledge. So frankincense is incense. It's a, it's a sweet spice that gives off a pleasing odor. Now that, of course, would be appropriate for a sweet savor offering to give off a pleasing odor. Frankincense was a very costly incense. It came from the Orient, and this is why that the wise men brought it as a gift to Jesus, because it's befitting of, of a king. And so they brought him frankincense, a very costly uh, a very costly thing. They spared no expense because of his majesty. Well, the Israelites there in the wilderness, no doubt, obtained frankincense from the most likely from the Egyptians before they left Egypt. Now, remember in the story that when they left Egypt, they were just like the, the Egyptians said, can you please go? We'll just kind of give you everything that you need. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the whole works. Take it all, go, just get out of here. That's the first reaction from the Egyptians. And so they get their frankincense, most likely, from that source. And so when they made the fire of the offering, they burned frankincense. And as they're making this offering, it gives off this very pleasing aroma. And this reminds us that Jesus went through fiery tribals, trials, rather, and, and yet in none of those trials did Jesus ever wilt. He never spoiled. 
He never reviled, or as the word says, he never opened his mouth against those that, that crucified him. Nothing that Christ did in his life or his death caused him to give off anything but a pleasing fragrance. And haven't we just read in the scriptures that this is what he did. He went about doing good and healing people, casting out devils and so forth. And there you see him right on the cross in the hour of death. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now in the story of Luke 4, Jesus was at that synagogue of Nazareth that we read just a moment ago. And if you go on in the story, we read this. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And in John chapter 7, the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to arrest Jesus. And they went out after him, but they came back without him. And they were asked, where is he? Why didn't you bring him back with you? And this is what we read in John 7. Then came the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Nobody's like Jesus. The frankincense is a sweet smell. The, the aroma is of one who is altogether lovely. Incense is also a very important part of tabernacle worship. At the entrance of the Holy of Holies, I mentioned it just a moment ago, there is this small altar called the Altar of Incense. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 30. I have a picture for you that gives you an idea of what that looks like. And this altar also represented Christ. Its construction is, is gold that's over, or wood rather, that's Overlaid with gold, that's deity and humanity that come together. And it has one purpose. It has only one purpose there. Only incense can be burned on this altar. This is what we read in Exodus 30, verses 8 and 9. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. Now take me back to that previous picture a second there, Joshua. The offering of incense stood for the intercession of Christ for his people. Because of his life of perfect obedience, he goes before the Father to plead the blood for forgiveness of our sins. Now you, you might say, well, you know, the, the cross, that's all we need. Everything, everything is, is wrapped up into the cross, and that's all there is. And once we've got that understanding, then we're good to go. But did you know that when you receive Christ as Savior, that you still sin? Anybody here know that? Did you know that you still sin even after you're saved? So what happens to all these sins that you commit after you believe? Well, they are covered by the blood of Christ. And this is what you see the priest doing there right now. Right there, he's not dealing with incense. What he's doing is putting a little bit of blood on the horns of the altar. And that blood is the blood of the sacrifice. And so, when Christ intercedes for us, he intercedes on the basis of the blood that he shed. But those sins are forgiven in a very special way. It's the constant, the sins that we continue to commit are, are, are satisfied by Christ through his blood and the constant intercession that he makes before God. And so there, Aaron applies the blood to the horns of the altar. So intercession is not divorced from the cross. 
And as that scripture said, this intercession cannot stop. It said Aaron is to offer this perpetual incense. He has to bring that continually. He has to burn it continually because that speaks of the constant pleading of Christ for his people. You're not going to go to heaven without that intercession. And for this reason, we read this important related scripture in Hebrews 7.25 which says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That sheds light on what Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse number 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, what does Paul mean that we are saved by his life? We're reconciled by his death, but he must live before we can live. Christ must be risen from the grave. Uh, he has to be alive or all is lost. And this is because he must go into the presence of God to continue to plead for us. Now, based on his perfect eternal life, God continues to forgive us of our sins, past, present, and future. So you're never going to come in condemnation, as Romans 8 verse 1 says. There's not going to be any condemnation. This constant intercession of Christ continues. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on, and it will until we get into heaven. Now, here's the last important point for tonight, that when Jesus returns in the resurrection and he's... and and. Uh, we're going to be raised and glorified and we'll receive a perfect body like that of Christ. First John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now when that happens, when we are glorified, there is no more sin. You're perfect at that time. And that's when Jesus ceases his active intercession. He no longer needs to plead forgiveness of sins. Because now everything is finally and fully accomplished. Everyone is glorified. All of his people are glorified. And then Jesus sits down. Then his work is done. All of his people are home. Sin is vanquished forever. Can you imagine that such beautiful truths just flow out of frankincense? And out of a grain offering. Just a simple thing, it seems like, that you read in Leviticus chapter 2. And these are the kinds of things that come out if you have a desire to study God's Word. These, these truths that come out of these scriptures, I, the only thing I can say, these things are too high for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior that Jesus is. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Such beautiful pictures that we see in the scriptures. Just take time to explore this and put scripture together and um, make this puzzle, all the pieces of it come together until Christ emerges in all these many, many different ways. How true it is what you said in Hebrews, that God spoke in various ways in the past And this is part of that. Lord, we thank you for it. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray for anyone here tonight who doesn't know him as Savior. As we just said, talking about him, me preaching this, seeing Christ from the outside has no effect on anyone. No one sees the beauty 
until the Holy Spirit works in their heart and brings them to the inside in repentance and faith in him. And that makes all the difference in how we see Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.